Welcome to uh, what will turn out to be a quite different episode of Shot Reverse Shot this week. We had a scheduled episode ready uh, that we were going to record that kind of was going to be a lot of fun. But then this week turned out to be like really shit uh, in real <laughs> life uh, for kind of everyone concerned. And uh, myself and Ed had a chat and we thought that it probably didn't seem apt to do our, our, our kind of chosen subject this week and perhaps to do something a little bit more comforting, Ed. Yeah, because, I mean, like, the week started with the mass shooting at Pulse, Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, and that was obviously an awful, horrible tragedy, terrible hate crime, lots of people were killed. And then on Thursday, was it, mm-hmm. um, the MP Joe Cox was murdered in, in Yorkshire, so it was that which is a, a, de- a terrible, horrible tragedy that has really kind of swept all over the entirety of Britain in a kind of real deadening way so like both half uh, both ends of our kind of skype conversation have kind of been hit hard this week by different tragedies and so uh, yeah we both thought maybe we should do something that's kind of more focused on the positive side of things after a week which has been uh just kind of a devastating event after devastating event after devastating event yeah because the devastating events just don't like kind of stop coming because uh, just a matter of hours before we sit down to record this, uh, we find out that uh, Anton Yelchin has died in, in a kind of a freak accident. Yeah, uh, for those who don't know, and I think most people probably will know who Anton Yelchin is now, just because the certainly if you're on Twitter, the the outpouring of grief has been pretty much nonstop. He was a very young actor, 27 years old, who was probably most well known for playing the character of Chekhov in the revived star trek series but who around his work in blockbusters like that and terminator salvation where he played the young kyle reese he 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 was like a con someone who constantly worked in lots of small films he was in a film called charlie bartlett with robert downey jr which was kind of a kind of an early breakthrough role for him he was in early this year he was in green uh, green room which a lot of people have said is, is really great and maybe one of his best performances and he was very much a young actor on the rise, someone who seemed to be hitting his stride, someone who was always fun to watch in everything he did and was kind of very exuberant even when he was doing kind of the big blockbuster stuff that he could have easily phoned in, but he was someone who always just seemed to delight in being able to perform. Losing him at like such a young age and with such promise uh, is like really incredibly kind of sad and heartbreaking. Mm. And yeah, kind of... Like you say, between the big blockbusters, he did a lot of smaller stuff. Um, I kind of first saw him in Like Crazy, which mm. is the Drake Doremus film, I think, from a few years ago, which came pretty close to cracking our top ten of that year. It was quite a likeable film with Felicity Jones, I'm going to say. He's very good in that. And yeah, just just it seems to be kind of like almost a laughable cap to uh, kind of a pretty shit week, like Ed said, with kind of dreadful things happening outside of our usual remit. So we decided to to kind of talk about comfort art. A lot of people kind of seek solace in art when they are feeling uh, kind of low or blue. Uh, I kind of said this a couple of weeks ago that with the trauma of moving house, I watched Overboard to make myself feel better. And uh, by golly, did it work. And art has the power to uh, kind of make us 
um, reconnect with humanity in ways um, and also make us forget about things that are kind of uh, terrible. So we thought we'd dedicate a whole episode to what makes us feel better and what kind of lifts us when, you know, the world looks like it's pretty shit. So, Ed, what's what was your go-to uh, piece of art in general when it's kind of looking bleak? Well, I, I was kind of thinking about the, the first thing that came to mind for this actually is kind of slightly outside the realm, outside the realm of art, but it's, it's kind of all... It's all television, I guess. It's all content. Um, mm-hmm. It's all comfort content, I guess, is the episode more than anything. Let's not call it that, because that could lead, <laughs> that could lead to a lot of erroneous YouTube hits. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I was actually thinking that uh, whenever I've had kind of horrible things happen, uh, either in my life or things in the kind of the broader socio-political world are really looking bleak, uh, I tend to watch a lot of sport, mm. which is not something I do when I'm happy. Because <laughs> um, despite my career choices of making sports-related video games, I don't watch a lot of sports. You know, I will keep track of what's happening in the NFL because that directly relates to what I do for a job for a living. But most of the time, it's not something I would really do for fun. But um, as as you know, and I think uh, some of our listeners may know, uh, my younger sister died unexpectedly a few years ago. And um, the whole thing with with that, the way that that happened, was that uh, she was in a coma for about a week. And the week that she was in a coma before she was taken off life support coincided with the 2013 World Series. Mm -hmm. And every night after being given updates on her condition and and not knowing what was going to happen, having all this terrible uncertainty if she was going to come out of it, and if she did come out of it, what her standard of living would be as a result of her injuries. You know, there was this, this just this terrible uncertainty happening all the time, but there was this certainty of knowing, okay, like the Red Sox are down 2-1 in the series and it's going back to Fenway Park. And, you know, that was something that was very easy to be distracted from, from this horrible thing that was happening, you know, in, in our lives, my lives, and the lives of my parents was that we could sit down and we could just watch baseball for two or three hours. And it was uh, a nice comforting thing to sit down and watch something that was simple, you know, Mm. it was two teams playing each other. Yeah. There's a familiarity and a comfort in sport. You know, there's going to be nine innings, you know, there's going to be two teams and you know, there's going to be runs scored and that one team will go away at the end and, you know, nothing really bad will happen. Yeah, and I mean, the kind of the same thing happened this week with the NBA Finals. I'm not someone who watches a huge amount of basketball. Uh, if you'd asked me my opinion on basketball before this week, it would have extended to uh, Hoop Dreams and Space Jam mm-hmm. uh, and uh, scenes in romantic comedies where best friends kind of talk about their feelings whilst uh, dribbling and, you know, playing a pickup game. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, around about all this horrible stuff in the, the news media, uh, at the same time, game five and six of the NBA finals were being played. And it was, you know, really nice to be able to kind of put aside kind of horrible concerns about the world and the way that uh, the year is unfolding to uh, and about, you know, whether or not we're going to remain in the EU, whether or not Donald Trump's going to be president, you know, all of these things to sit there and think, you know, can the Cavaliers kind of pull it back? Can LeBron James, who is, you know, maybe one of the most incredible athletes who has ever played the game, can almost single-handedly kind of pull this series back from the brink. Uh, And the high drama of that is immensely satisfying to watch unfold. 
Mm. I wonder whether, I mean, it's very interesting. I'm sure that a lot of people kind of feel the same way about kind of uh, comfort in sport, um, that whether or not it's because it's high drama with low stakes. Mm. I mean, people talk about stakes in sport all the time, but ultimately they're kind of meaningless, aren't they? Like, you know, if they win the game uh, or they don't win the game, it just starts again next season and Mm. it's exactly the same. And I wonder whether, like, sport is something that manages to wring moments of incredible drama and incredible kind of, like, emotional investment, but without ever having a payoff that is... Well, I mean, the highs are going to be kind of exhilarating, but the lows don't really last that long. Mm. And I also... I I definitely think that is true. I definitely feel like... Particularly in this thing where it's a yearly contest, Mm -hmm. and there is a sense that, you know, everyone's... You know, win or lose, everyone's going to kind of dust themselves off. Some of them are going to go and get to meet the president at the White House. Some of them aren't. Uh, but then, you know, it all kicks off again next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, where and and you know that's you know again quite comforting. You know, there's a rhythm to it. Whereas I didn't, I I haven't felt the desire to watch um, Euro 2016 because I feel like having something like that happen every four years, the drama is kind of a bit too much. And also, um. Because football fans tend to be violent hooligans. Mm. Uh, and so even though the game itself may not have any high stakes, some of the things we've seen with, um, with say, Russian football fans in this last two weeks make it the outcome of the games feel a lot more dangerous because you're like, okay, maybe only one goal gets scored, but maybe 50 people end up in the hospital. Mm. Yeah, I think, well, having watched the France-Switzerland game earlier today, I probably would have rather been glassed by a Russian fan because <laughs> um, that was pretty fucking turgid, I have to say. It's, yeah, it's. I think it's interesting to kind of seek something that's, that, like, because it's not art, is it? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sport, it's entertainment, but it's rarely art. No, I mean, I guess it's art in the sense that how it's depicted is a big part of that in terms of the whole spectacle of how it's presented on tv the editing that they use to kind of emphasize the drama but also commentators acting essentially as the greek chorus kind of talking about all the stuff that's going on and really hyping up the interpersonal drama between the players mm-hmm. i think that that pushes it into the realm of art it's certainly into the realm of entertainment as opposed to like if you were just to watch people play basketball live with none of the accoutrements it wouldn't be art um, other than the sense that, you know, dance is art because you're watching people who are really skilled at a particular thing doing it to the best of their abilities. Mm, I just realised that you said accoutrements and I think that would be a really good team to be out of Montreal. Uh, (laughs) The Montreal accoutrements versus the Toronto Raptors, for example. It'd be like a real kind of of team of stuffy dilettantes who would just kind of trot around the pitch. Uh, It's not a pitch, is it, in basketball? It's a court. Yeah, you, you're sounding like Ted Cruz now. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, they walk on. They've got monocles. They throw their top hats into the crowd. It's a real, mm. it's a real display. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose that like a lot of people seek kind of solace in art um, when they're kind of like going through uh, awful kind of relationship trauma mm. and a lot of people will kind of subscribe to kind of putting a record on and there are a lot of great breakup albums and a lot of great kind of like breakup songs that kind of make people feel better but I always keep coming back to the fact that like when I was a teenager 
um, in my late teens and kind of my first real girlfriend and I broke up with her. Um, obviously I was the kind of the person who was on the receiving end. It's, you know, I can paint myself as a tragic hero in that sense. Um, but weirdly, like the film Swingers kind of helped me through that in a way that like I can barely quantify because that film on the surface is, is quite a shallow film about kind of uh, essentially hipsters who listen to swing music um, and I've kind of very shallow people but as I've got older and watched it more and more and kind of I can appreciate there's a very human story underneath and a very familiar story which uh, is very honest and uh, kind of spoke to me in a way that helped me deal with that and you know in my long myriad of breakups since I've kind of turned to it pretty much every time to make me feel better and um, probably when I get divorced from my wife, I will, <laughs> I will load it up straight away, which is odd because, again, like, but then I appreciate that film like much de- differently now than I did then when before I was like, oh, this is a cool film. It's got a kind of good soundtrack and they say money a lot. Whereas now I think, you know, it's actually quite a sad film about being in like, kind of a directionist, kind of 20, 20 year old and, you know, about a man who's like desperately heartbroken. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that it's a, a shallow film, which I think it, it definitely is in terms of the the period, essentially the period trappings of it, because now it is basically a period piece of a very specific time in American pop culture, and particularly kind of LA pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much trapped in the mid-90s and, and the cultural obsessions of the time. But I think it's also a film that recognises its shallowness in the, in the John Favreau character in his journey to realising that the kind of the more glib aspects of his friends and their approach to relationships uh, ultimately won't make him happy. Mm. Uh, and I feel like that is is the thing that resonates more and more as time goes on. Is it does have that melancholy quality? A similar film, I think, is something like Sideways. I think has some of that as well. Mm -hmm. Because I think when it came out, all anyone would talk about was like the fucking Merlot line and how it was like this, this film for people who like wine and everything like that. But the more, the more you get away from that and uh, you can ignore, certainly if you're me and, and and have a well-established aversion to wine, um, (laughs) you can appreciate it as a film about someone whose uh, obsession with a certain thing is kind of um hurting him to an extent you know destroying his life and here and the various ways in which this obsession with wine is kind of representative of deeper problems in his kind of psyche and his relationships with the world Mm. Uh, and i feel like those two films uh, which came out came out like nine ten years apart they i always think of them as very much uh companion pieces in that respect and also, mm. I think they they offer a similar level of, of comfort in that they are kind of very weirdly they are very, have what looks like a very kind of superficial, shallow surface, but there's kind of a core of melancholy that makes them resonate far past the the time when they were released. Mm. Yeah, I've always kind of thought of those two films as bedfellows, and mm. um, perhaps when I'm kind of like a forty year old alcoholic divorce divorcee then I will uh, turn to sideways rather than swingers. <laughs> I'm not, it's not a divorcee if you're a man, is it? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, well, it you, might have be like, div- you have like widow and widower. Yeah. Divorcer? Divorcer. No, that sounds like a pixie song. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> mm, yeah. An interesting one. I'm not sure. Do you think that like in times of a kind of crisis or like, you know, when, when kind of things aren't looking too great, you can always turn to the wholesome, you know, your your films like Harvey, 
or like the sound of music and ignore the fact that they're about a man who's clearly a psychopath and <laughs> Nazis. Um, I, I definitely feel like that. Um, like one of the films that I always like turning to uh, if I'm down or if I'm, you know, if I'm just kind of feeling bad about the world is the, the is a singing in the rain, mm. which is a hugely enjoyable movie uh, about uh, tectonic shifts in the uh, in the film industry that destroy a lot of people's careers. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, so there is a air of sadness to that film in terms of that it signalled the end of a particular period in the history of film, but it's delivered kind of so ebulliently and with such uh, enthusiasm and love that it's hard not to be swept away of it. And it helps that in addition to having all of these great songs that are beautifully staged, it's a really, really funny comedy. Mm. Um, so that's a film that kind of hits everything you could want. It's got big outsized emotions. It's got music uh, and it also will, you know, it make them laugh. You know, it's got even a song about that particular, that particular problem. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think um, when it came to this week, it was kind of an odd thing this week that like after we discussed through this episode, me and my wife, um, my aforementioned about to be divorced wife, <laughs> decided to kind of uh, have a movie night and kind of want to watch something that would make us feel better. And like weirdly, we kind of settled on the film Mary and Max, which is a really sad film, but also kind of like hugely uplifting at the end. Um, and I wonder, like, because all those things, all the films we've described, I mean, people who say that, like, you know, It's a Wonderful Life um, is the ultimate feel-good film. It starts with the man about to kill himself. So I wonder if, like, people need a bit of the bleak to kind of uh, to taste the, uh, the the kind of upward curve. Yeah, I, I certainly sometimes will. I think this is true of a lot of people. You know, it's nice to have a bit of catharsis and a nice cry mm. um, to kind of paraphrase a Carl Kinane bit, you know, just put on how to train your dragon and just weep a little bit. Um, mm. But like, I think of something like um, up is a really good example of that because that is a film that starts incredibly sadly and then uh, is kind of high flying adventure for a little bit that kind of balances out the kind of crushing opening 15 minutes. But then you get kind of the second round of tears when Carl uh, opens his adventure book or mm-hmm. Ellie's adventure book and sees all of the pictures and realizes that she felt there life together was was the adventure and stuff like that uh and that is you're, you're um, gonna get me started again Ed. <laughs> yeah, i am i am choking up a little bit just talking about it because that's just so such a beautiful idea and so well so well realized um yeah so i and i and you know uh it's a wonderful life is you know just kind of a painful drudge through all of a man's many failings <laughs> mm. until he realizes that they were the things that made you know his whole life kind of worth living in the end because he built up a town a family and a community and he, he saved the town and all this sort of stuff mm. um i do feel like something that is bittersweet is perhaps more nourishing to the soul than something that is just pure pure fluff although pure mm. fluff can be like really really helpful as well mm. i think we've said it before on this show but like up really is a marvel in that like it can take the most kind of like heart-wrenching depiction of kind of loss and sadness and then balance it out with dogs flying biplanes <laughs> and it, it not feel like an awkward gear shift. Yeah, that on paper should not have ever worked. That You know, no. it sh- you could think, okay, that opening could be like a little short film that you would show. Like may- maybe not before another animated film. <laughs> uh, mm. You know, I think that would be too much for, pe- for for young children to endure. But, you know, you could imagine all of the different segments of it working in separate contexts. 
but the fact that they were able to make all of those things work is it is you know kind of really really incredible and and inside out you know keeping it on on pixar also does a similar trick where it's this this film that has the you know all this kind of crazy imagination and everything but it also has uh uh rich kind saying like you know take it to the moon for me and then just kind of disappearing into nothingness uh mm. which is just like such an incredibly sad uh you know like never-ending story kind of death of a fictional character moment um that is really really tough and really kind of heartrending in a film that is otherwise like just like pure kind of energy and excitement and adventure at every turn mm. and so the kind of flip to flip uh, version of of Toy Story three, which is you know an hour and a half of high adventure, and then not one but two devastating emotional punches to the face. Yeah, Pixar Pixar are very good at kind of uh, flipping the script and just kind of leaving you uncertain which way it's going to go. Mm. Where I mean, are you going to be crying? I've not get... seen find, Finding Dory yet, but I, I imagine they're going to find her in a toilet. <laughs> oh, that would be unexpected, but also kind of in character with Pixar. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, kind of people say like laughter is the best medicine and it does work sometimes. But like there's that story, isn't there, that like Zoolander kind of failed terribly at the box office because it was released on 9-11. There weren't too many people queuing up on that day. No, probably not. Um, mm. Although the film that was number one the week after 9-11 was... Uh, was it The Replacements, I think it was called, with Keanu Reeves, where he was oh, like yeah. in charge of a kid's basketball team or something? It's sport again. <laughs> sport again. People were ready to watch fake sports, but not to watch kind of goofy male models. Mm. Um, that that film is uh, it's actually about American football. And it's about the, ah. uh, the players' strike, I think there was, and they brought in ringers to uh, basically kind of... They brought in some scabs to mm. kind of non-union players to kind of fill the gaps, and Keanu Reeves, one of the aforementioned scabs um so yeah there it goes so there you go comfort in sport maybe yeah i think zoolander also uh got probably the the harshest criticism ever from roger ebert which he said this is why the terrorists hate us <laughs> um, because i think it came out the week or two weeks after 9-11 and uh, i always thought that you know that and his kind of negative review of unforgiven because he was having a bad day are probably the two where he may not have been in the right mindset for the film. Because <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. whatever you can say of Zoolander as a criticism, I don't think it's the reason that, you know, 3,000 people were killed in one of the most, kind of the worst cases of terrorism ever. Yeah, I mean, that seems a little on the harsh side. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for like, you know, cutting kind of to the bone and scathing criticisms, but yeah that's a little much i wonder what kind of national tragedy was was embracing the kind of the us when the mighty ducks was top of the uh, <laughs> the box office <laughs> there must have been something uh, probably like the gulf war or something terrible was happening but yeah it's a strange coincidence maybe that's why space jam is being remade yeah it's the right time for it people are ready to watch Le- lebron james or stefan curry or whoever ends up starring in it uh, mm. play alongside long uh, characters that children don't really care about anymore. Yeah. I suppose if like Donald Trump wins the election, then there will be no films anymore. It'll just be no fun. <laughs> I don't know. It'll just be like pictures of his face projected onto a screen, kind of big brother style. Uh, I know what it will be. will be like in the early days of big brother. I don't know if they still do it now, but when E4 used to be just live streaming of the inside of the big brother house, right? Uh, it would just be that the inside of the white house, just following him for the whole day and seeing whatever he does. 
Mm, yeah, he has the best TV shows, the really best TV shows. Uh, he has great TV shows. They've got bigly ratings. Yeah, <laughs> bigly ratings. So my first exposure to Donald Trump was actually, that sounds like, this, this sounds like it's a wrong story, listeners, that my first exposure <laughs> to Donald Trump was in, I think, like WrestleMania 3, possibly. <laughs> and it was it was noted because like he, him and Ivana Trump, I think might have been his ex-wife, maybe he's still married to her, I'm not sure. And they were like introducing one of their matches or something. Yeah, he has done a lot of stuff with the rest, WrestleMania over the years. There is a uh, a gif doing the rounds of I think during a fight, him either him or someone wearing a wig that looks very much like his own precarious uh, quiff, like just running up and tackling him to the ground. <laughs> so he he and John Stewart, despite being on very opposite ends of the spectrum, are two people who seem to enjoy just showing up to matches and just talking shit. And clearly, I think he has learned something from his experience with. The, uh, the WWE organization because his entire campaign seems to be being waged on the kind of the precepts of being a heel. Yeah, yeah, a lot of trash talking, not much uh, kind of serious policy thought going into things. Yeah, uh, I want yeah. to know what The Rock is cooking, by which I mean I want to know about his plans for campaign finance reform. Yeah, <laughs> and what well, does that mean that The Rock is going to be like Secretary of State? Some people have talked about him possibly running for office at some point, and I think that would be very, very odd, but also seems like the logical endpoint of his entire life, because I think he's probably the only person that most Americans like at this point. Mm. Yeah, kind of <laughs> universally accepted. Yeah, if there is a contested convention, I think he is the, the best uh, candidate for them to fly in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a weird sidetrack into Donald Trump uh, <laughs> territory there. But just in short, don't vote for someone who is like essentially the villain from Gremlins 2. Uh, <laughs> that's who he's based on. So yeah, don't do that. So yeah, like I really don't think that we're going to offer any easy answers to kind of give people comfort after what has been a very trying week. Um, and, you know, just generally the kind of geopolitical situation on this planet is not great, but kind of stay with it because, you know, hopefully it'll pick up. If it doesn't, Ed, what can we recommend to the viewers to cheer them up in a kind of like a, a one pill kind of solves all type solution? Uh, well, I was kind of thinking of, of what are the things that I can my go to things for if I need cheering up. And uh, comedy has basically been the thing that's been there throughout my entire life. And like any time there's been some great kind of um, this kind of great change, like when I went moved away to uni, for example. Um, I that I became obsessed with the sitcom Early Doors, which I don't mm-hmm. know if you if you remember that, which was a sitcom set in a pub. And was it with like, Craig Cash? It was with Craig Cash. Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. Uh, one of the creators as well. Uh, and he uh, and that and that show was very meant a lot to me because you know my parents had run this kind of small town pub and it was very reminiscent of of you know of home. So it was very it filled very much a, a important emotional need and reminded me of home at a time that I needed it. So comedy is kind of a thing that I go to, and, and my go to uh, would be would be Spaced, the mm-hmm. Channel Four sitcom from the late nineties and early two thousands. Partly because it's a show that you know I've I've been watching kind of periodically on and off for seventeen years at this point, or or uh, maybe closer to fifteen because I think I started watching it in the second season uh, series. But 
it's a show that you know is, is hugely enjoyable and when i first watched it it was very much kind of like uh there was something weirdly aspirational about it because it was a show about with these kind of very nerdy touchstones which obviously appealed to me but they were all people who were 10 years older than i was so it was like oh you know it'd be great you know kind of once you've moved out and you go and like stay with friends and get drunk and do drugs all the time and now you know looking back on it and i'm now like three years older than any of the characters or five years older than any of the characters were now it's kind of like you're looking back at and thinking yep that was pretty much what my 20s were like this is <laughs> this is a very close approximation i don't know how much of this was a self-fulfilling prophecy but it was definitely even though they were kind of capturing what kind of living in london was like in the 1990s it felt very much like it, it rings very much true from my experience of kind of being a 20 something in sheffield in the mid to late 2000s so Maybe that's just because London's always a little bit ahead of the rest of the country. But mm. that that is definitely a show that I think is endlessly rewarding. And even though there's only 14 episodes of it, those 14 episodes have given me, you know, just kind of huge uh, amounts of joy over the years. And also, you know, uh, after when I kind of watched it in the mid 2000s, I was also posting prolifically on a spaced message board. And I met uh, a lot of people who are still my friends like more than a decade later because of that. So there's this kind of, whole mess of kind of great great feelings around it for me um but it all comes from the fact that spaced is an amazing sitcom that introduced the world to edgar wright simon Pegg, jessica stevenson all these like wonderful talented creative people who have gone um to do really great work separately and together mm. it really brings people together that show i mean we did uh five and dime screening of it we did a marathon of every episode back to back uh maybe 18 months ago and and you know just the the kind of auditorium was full of of groups of mates and mm. uh that's what it is it wasn't like many people sat on their own watching it it was you know lots of people together because you know it's it kind of speaks to people in a way that kind of uh brings them together to kind of celebrate a shared experience pretty well i'll say uh i'm gonna go for something uh also a comedy but you know if you're ever feeling like it's getting too much or like you kind of turn on the news and it's like total bullshit um just fucking put airplane on man like because there ain't nothing funnier than that film like a bear could be eating my mum like and I'd still be laughing at like the look on the girl's face when they accidentally unplug her like drip is <laughs> that's just hilariously funny like there is uh so many gags in that that like like I still I've seen that that movie like 20 times at least and I still find new things to laugh at and things that I didn't think were as funny before will suddenly become funnier. And it is just a kind of like the mo- the dumbest fun you could probably ever have. But it's not it's not stupid. It's so clever and so spot on with with what it's doing that uh, even a kind of weirdly uh, inappropriate Saturday Night Fever pastiche uh, still somehow is funny now, even though you know, the film was made around the time that the film came out. In fact, it was like three years too late parodying that film. Um, (laughs) But it's somehow still funny now. And I will always, always crack up when the guy is pointing out there's a knife in his back, but Elaine copies it thinking it's a dance move. (laughs) Um, Because that will never not be funny. And that's true of pretty much every scene in that film. That will never not be funny. Yeah, I I find that a similar thing. You know, airplane is, is there's so many jokes that there are just so many things that I, if I leave a few years between them, I'll just forget them or something uh, will have changed in like me and my terms of sense, my sensibility, and a different thing will be funnier. Like the next time I watch it, like uh, I remember 
uh, like when I first watched it, I was just completely blown away by the scene where the captain is checking himself in the mirror. <laughs> and then at the end of the scene, uh, the camera is lifted, shifted slightly. So it's just showing his reflection and then his reflection walks out of the mirror. <laughs> and it's such a weird idea that just works so very, very well. And a, a kind of a similar film for that movie, something like Blazing Saddles, mm-hmm. where like as a kid watching it, like the, th- the, the, the thing that's funny is it's just loads of inappropriate words being said in a Western setting. Mm-hmm. But like as an adult, you know, there's nothing funnier to me than um, than Harvey Corman dying, looking at I think Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s feet and going, "How did he do such stunts with such little feet?" <laughs> and it's just it's such a weird weird moment and this kind of bizarre fourth wall breaking finale that uh, is just like the funniest thing in the world to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a nice thing about returning to like just incredibly dense joke heavy comedies is there's always something new to discover mm. i saw my friend graham the other day for the first time in like a year and every time i see him i'm reminded of the fact that there was a quite a long stretch of uni where he would wear two pairs of sunglasses <laughs> at the same time just so he could do the joke where he takes off his sunglasses and he has another <laughs> pair underneath and it would always be funny because that's always funny it's yeah. so stupid <laughs> like why is that funny but it just fucking is so yeah you know it does look uh, kind of like there's clouds on the horizon, everybody. But I'm sure we can kind of get through this together collectively. We will be back next week with our regular kind of uh, programming. It will resume. And, yeah, keep it together, everybody. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.